blanket and sensors and tracks and impact data on dashboards. Our destinies are too magnificent to fit on any puny blockchain ledger. Yes. Our life force belongs not on an ESG environmental social governance portfolio, but woven into complex tapestries of life that bind us to one another, to the land and to all beings enriching our lives from the microbes to majestic cottonwoods. Our freedom struggle is for the preservation of all natural, non-synthetic life on Mother Earth. Hello and welcome to Dystopian Deep Dives with your hosts, Natalie Donna. What follows is a conversation with Allison McDowell, whose blog is A Wrench in the Gears. And you can find her YouTube channel as well. So I hope you really enjoy this. It's about cybernetics, uh, the panopticon, how this technology uh, makes use of human capital and impact markets. Um, And so you came into your activism via technology and education. Did that make it easier for you to see through the narrative of COVID-19? Well, I had been sort of working in the area around privatizing and, and create, turning public this, sort of the public realm into a profit center through the social impact investing, which was kind of the focus of my research that and the technology that enables it, um, you know, for four or five years. But the things they were talking about were so, they seemed so extreme that, you know, it was hard to imagine how it would all come to pass these sort of you know, white papers and imaginings that, you know, outfits like Knowledge Works were putting out. And so when, you know, I thought I sort of had maybe seven to 10 years to explain people like what was going to come. And so, yeah, like that first couple, like week or two after we were sent home from work on, you know, the, you know, the flattening the curve narrative, um, I was like, oh, like I had this terrible feeling because it was not only at the time wondering, you know, is this a biowarfare attack? You know, like, is it premeditated? Like, what exactly is this? Um, and then understanding the implications of what was going to happen with all of these, um, you know, the, the, the aftermath and the, um, you know, now the war on natural life, we've moved on from the war on terror, to the, the war on the terror of non-synthetic life. And so it was, yeah, emotionally really hard. Um, but, you know, I think I could see a lot of the moving pieces because there are elements of the education reform space that were being framed around choice and data analytics and data interoperability and um, surveillance in the classroom that once I could pivot it into the health space. Um, And I had done a little bit of work on sort of the internet of bodies because the University of Pennsylvania health system is also, as well as Jefferson, but a lot of, you know, steeped locally here in Philadelphia. Um, I had done a little bit on that because the, the telehealth, the, the internet of bodies was in that sphere. I hadn't done it deeply, but the same dynamics were at work in sort of managing your intellect or manager training was not that dissimilar from managing your health or, you know, managing your body. Right. So a lot of the same things were in play. Yeah, the systems that they're creating are, you know, going to extend to lots of different uh, markets, I guess. So, and I don't want to talk about healthcare or education as a commodity, but it seems to be what they view it, view those things as. Um, 
Well, it's measurable behavior change. So right. essentially it's, it's sort of the takeover and the gamification of life mm -hmm. in this sort of um, what they call the spatial web, you know, this, this taking of the internet both internally into virtual space and gamification in, in virtual world building and then applying the sensor networks of interactive virtual world onto the physical world. It's kind of like both are happening at the same time. Right. So I think it was a lot easier for you to sort of pick up on the patterns and, you know, the systems in place or the things that they're trying to put in place. And you talk a lot about the manipulation of language, which is another subject that is very close to me as well, where I, you know, I look at their language to make this so-called fourth industrial revolution palatable. Uh, what are some of the key phrases I have here? You, you've said it's, um, we have to interrogate the vocabulary of so-called equity, so-called sustainability and consent. So what do you, what do you, what do you mean by that? And what are the, some of the things that they do to manipulate language to make these things sound great? Well, I think part of what, what we're immersed in, it's, it's understanding the context and what is happening is technology is being used to turn all of the social systems, you know, our social relations, our relationship to the state into a flat out weapon against the poor, but the poor meaning now in this sort of global economic breakdown of the economy and reimagining it is this virtualized world is that many, many more people will fall under that category. There will be a very thin layer of billionaires and, and then the managerial class that runs the machine and then the vast, vast majority. It will just not only get the middle class, but you know, the professional class as well. So they're imagining and in order, and that will be done through you know, I've, I've spoken before about, um, like I understand it almost as if what happened to indigenous people, that they were put onto reservations and made wards of the state and then abused in that situation. That now that, that fate awaits most of humanity and natural life if we don't stand against it in this moment. Um, so in order for the weaponization of this social safety net to take place, they had to sort of capture the mind of, um, you know, the liberal, the progressive and the left. You know, they had to convince them that somehow that um, I guess that they wouldn't be abused by the state, you know, that 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 um, this this dialogue around universal basic income and, you know, our, our equal access to Medicare for all and, um, you know, and, and not, I'm not in any way saying that people don't deserve access to those things, but they've been remade as these impact markets tied to data surveillance to be to profit hedge funds and the technology interests and, and really the sort of military interests. And um, so they, but they needed for the language to be used in such a way that if you questioned it, you, it would be very hard to thread the needle both to say, I acknowledge that the sort of brutal social conditions that so many people are living under, and yet the solutions that are going to be offered are only going to double down on the brutality and on the harm that is being caused. It's going to leverage that past trauma and misery into further profit for um, these this sort of you know small billionaire class, and and most people don't want to look at that like they don't want to actually own that that's because many of the people who are running the machine are and were credentialed by the machine because this is advancing with 
you know, the, the, the full on acknowledgement of university, the university systems, especially the Ivy League university systems, you know, Penn, but the Stanford's and the Whartons, you know, they've, they're not in a position to question it. And I think psychically, it would almost break them to question it. And so the, the, the language of equity, uh, you know, I, I question all of this is going, these impact investments run on data. They're evidence-based, you know, I say put air quotes around that, data-driven, you know, analytics-driven. And then the fundamental question is, before we go down that road, could we ask, do we think that with more granular data, um, the, the most wealthy people who are advancing, you know, empire now down to our, you know, cells through biotech, like, do we actually think that those people are going to somehow awaken to the nature of the problem and, and have an incentive to fix it when these impact markets are actually incentivized to grow the misery, to grow their profit in social impact investing. And nobody wants to sort of stop and actually look like, is equity on a dashboard as data um, really truly equity? Is that, is that where, it, do we have that mechanistic um, view that sort of, you know, of scientism, you know, of the world, right, of the world of the machine. Mm -hmm. Right. And yeah, it, it's, it's a long plan. It's a long plan, I feel. And I think, you know, speaking of language and, and some of the phrases that you use, um, like stakeholder, capitalism, impact investing, maybe we can define some of those for people who aren't as familiar with these terms. What is impact investing? So essentially what is coming, it's both impact investing, sometimes it's called um, ESG investing, environmental social governance. Um, it, it blends with stakeholder capitalism, the nicer kind of capitalism, is um, reframing human life as debt. That we are born with sort of a set amount of indebtedness on society based on a, a, a profiling of our potential future and what uh, social welfare services we might need to survive in this world, especially a world where um, robots and avatars are taking over. So people like from birth are profiled from a deficit outlook. And then they talk about impact as being interventions that are issued through like social welfare systems that generate data that are framed as fixing you. Like, and fixing you as an individual within a system as they've outlined and defined success. And so, you know, we, we currently understand ourselves as being in a, um, you know, a system that causes a lot of depression and trauma for people, right? It's a pretty broken system, but we are supposed to sort of fix ourselves being gritty and resilient into um, this dysfunctional machine. And, and to do that, that will make us successful in, in um, this framing of impact. Um, so th that is pay for success finance, this idea that you will be managed through your education system, your healthcare system, your rehabilitation, whether that's physical or addictions related, your food access, your housing access to become a better um, participant in society. And that is sort of now the rules of this game are aligned with the United Nations Sustainable Development Goals, which brings in the word sustainability. Right. Which everyone has been conditioned to think, um, you know, because I do believe most people are um, 
how are well intentioned. I think the media is being used to inflame this idea that most people are terrible and hateful. And I, I don't believe that that is true, actually. I think most people have their heart in the right place. Most people would prefer to live um, in a world where we treated the environment in a more respectful way and we had, you know, we were all healthier and we had better air quality and better wa water quality. But um, the, the, sustain the United Nations is now an extension essentially of the World Economic Forum, which are these um, you know, most influential corporate powers and powers of finance and technology. And so the sustainable development goals of which there are 17 are largely about managing the poor in relation to the environment. And then there's a few that are actually about managing air and water and the earth, but a lot of them are actually about managing people. And for them to run impact markets, which are data-driven, it means that all of how you operate in the world has to run through a device to collect the data, which in and of itself, if you understand that, if anyone understands um, what that actually looks like is a tremendous amount of e-waste, a tremendous amount of mining of rare minerals to run these devices and run the cabling, um, a tremendous expenditure of energy and water to cool the server farms because the cloud right. isn't actually cloud-like. It's a giant, you know, yeah, it's a big seat. warehouse of, <laughs> of right. servers. It's not, yeah, people it's don't. Not green. I it's think not people green. don't uh, realize what what uh, the infrastructure behind this technology. I really don't. I don't think some people have connected. You know, there's actual you know machines out there with all of your data and everything. And you're right with What's really ironic is none of this is sustainable, right? No, it's not. <laughs> I mean, it relies on child miners, child labor. Like we, you know, we, we plan coups against governments so we can get their minerals to run this thing. Mm -hmm. It's not, you know, yeah, and I so think they that's have why to frame it in, go ahead. Yeah, they have to no, frame I mean, it that way, right? They have to frame it to make you or I or anyone on the street who's not looking into it deeply believe, yeah, this is good for everybody. It's smart. <laughs> Everything is smart, right? Right, right. <laughs> These true. sensors are smart. And yeah. you know, what is being positioned now, especially in the, the aftermath of this past year, is that, um, you know, a lot of this is the World Bank and the IMF is a part of um, reshaping this fourth industrial revolution, this great reset, creating a world that runs on artificial intelligence and sensors and quantum computing and synthetic biology. and they're virtualizing the world. And, you know, I think it's really because people do realize that there is a, there is a caring capacity for the earth. I mean, I'm not talking from the Malthusian version of it, but like we do need to actually be better and re, re reflect on our consumer culture about how we use the earth's resources in better ways. But the corporate version, the corporate greening that's coming that um, you know, Corey Morningstar speaks really eloquently to and, and with very detailed research. She's um, also blogs at Wrong Kind of Green. She has her own blog and she posts there. She had the environmental corporate capture of the environmental movement where, you know, I was bringing in um, the impact investing about managing the poor. And it's those two pieces of the, of the equation. But the corporate environmentalism, it's, it's not sustainable. And so the World Bank is using something called One Health which is a concept that humans are a danger to nature and nature is dangerous now to people because we might get sick. So really we should really restrict our footprint. Really we should you know, manage reproduction on the planet 
and contain, create a con containment zone where um, human life becomes increasingly disconnected from the natural world and that people are pushed in their consumer consumption, their, their self-branding identity becomes more of a, a cyborg, an avatar consumption model where that is immersed in a virtual reality, in, in, in an immersive reality world, a mixed reality world that you might not have uh, the same number of physical material assets, but you will start to acquire digital commodities, which may be digital representations of virtual goods, but they can also be like newer layers of identity, like identity in accruing to your avatars in these spaces that are going to be almost used as currency in these um, virtual world building exercises. And, and what's making that possible, the shift of tracking digital assets, not just as currency, but all sorts of digital assets, including rights and privileges, is, is the blockchain, which is the, the technology that underpins cryptocurrency, but it's an it's a encrypted decentralized ledger system um, that will track you through the spatial web and, and build your permanent record of like your digital twin. You know, and I have some challenges with people who are, you know, there are quite a few people who are like in the agorist realm who are imagining that blockchain and, and these cryptocurrencies are liberation. And my, my positionality is, is that I feel that the, the, the proper response to the sort of descending theological techno-fascism that is coming is actually from a, a point of indigenous resurgence, like a connection to land and natural mm -hmm. systems, and that we're not a good relative if we continue to advance like crypto economics and blockchain as the way we want, want to run our society. Because as far as I can tell, no one has shown me any sort of sustainable model for this digital currency. We see a lot of, so you talk a lot about sort of augmented reality, virtual reality, them building these systems that we're going to be basically living these virtual games that in, in turn, like operate these systems um, in, in, in a myriad of ways, right? You know, there's lots yeah. of uh, areas that, that this can happen. And what I think about a lot is we kind of have an analog version of, of this sort of virtualized character in what I call identity politics. And mm -hmm. so do you, do you think that this will be part of our uh, virtual world as what you call I guess meta humans, like we're going to integrate our, you know, all of our little tiny politics and things like this, you know, into this meta human that they vision us as. Well, I remember like early on in the past year, you know, coming across this idea of digital twins. And, you know, this idea that this interoperable data was sort of building a virtual replica of yourself. And, you know, my sense is, is that that's, we're not quite there yet, but that's what 6G is for, you know, after 5G comes 6G is digital twinning. You know, there are a lot of efforts underway around um, using, I think, healthcare data, like precision medicine as sort of a cover to develop um, the digital twin technology. Nippon Telecom and a Telegraph and Telephone like talks, they have a bunch of white papers on digital twinning. And, and actually it's already in place now. Like they'll, when you, people are doing modeling for machines or cars, you know, they create digital twins of the machines. Now they're just doing it for people. And if you understand, for me, the way I understand that capitalism is sort of going virtual so that it can continue to grow 
you know, in, in air quotes, because that's the requirement that must grow. And then the world is too small. So it will grow internally, which doesn't mean that there's no cost to it, because clearly there still is an environmental cost of running the virtual world, but it's not quite the same dynamic as the physical world of acquisition. Um, if you're creating value in identity in these twins operating according to, you know, proper digital behavior in these virtual environments, to me, it seems logical that the next version of growing that economy would be that even um, existing digital twins might end up with like split personalities. Like you, you might develop a range of avatar identities. Right. We already like, do that, don't we? On the internet, yeah. we kind of have compartmentalized all of our different, you know, things that we like or things that we're into. And we access this one site if we're into gardening and we have a little community over there and we might have a different name. Just cycling back a little bit, because we were talking about the sustainable development goals and you mentioned sustainable development goal number three. Do you remember yeah. which one that is and why it's important? Yeah, so that's health. Mm. And so, um, yeah, so goal three is health. And you know, I, I think increasingly, you know, as they are moving towards the, the you know, they, they've said straight up, like, you know, Microsoft, these folks, they want to build a planetary computer. You know, they want to remake the world as a computer. They want to engineer life on the planet. They want to put a barcode on everything and manage it. And in doing that, you know, they're, they're moving towards this automation and they want to control everyone. So they need to have everyone trackable, you know. And so, you know, I talk about, you know, I don't know, maybe five years ago when it was the cool thing to like, they put tags on great white sharks and there was sort of an app like you could track where your favorite great white shark was traveling, like we're off the, off the Cape Cod or, you know, off North Carolina, like you could check in on them. And that, that sort of that's the trackability is sort of where we're going. And a lot of this is tied to health tracking. So the new thing will be health tracking. And, and it, there's also overlaps with industrial farming, like a lot of the industrial livestock management is that for. Right. For the they kind of see us as livestock, don't they? We're, we're sort of been yeah. translated we're not even really human i don't think to a lot of the people who are implementing these systems correct yeah. and i think i think i mean the the um you know how we have experienced the past year has been incredibly dehumanizing like further oh, yeah. dehumanizing because For sure. the things that would make us human and individualized um you know, our creative acts, our acts of faith, our acts of socializing, our acts of like art creation or, you know, shared experiences have all been limited, like drastically limited. So um, really people have become more and more managed. Atomized. Oh, sorry. <laughs> yeah. No, atomized. Yeah. Atomized. Yeah. Is the thing that I, uh, and you talk about that, how they want to break everyone down into like digital little bits and atomize them so that they can track their behavior and create new markets based on their behavior. Yeah, you know, and these health apps are already embedded in all the phones. Mm -hmm. Like you can't delete the health app off an iPhone. Like I'm trying, like you're like, nope, you can't do that. Like, and I don't use it, right? Like we're not, we're not using it. So where it was like, you know, the, the sleeper cell for, you know, the, the, I was looking yesterday um, on, uh, at smart health records and uh, 
the Smart Health Network, which is something out of the World Wide Web Consortium has been working on this for a long time of creating interoperable data standards. So the way in which they standardized education, and again, this is where my lens comes in handy, you know, in order to turn education and human capital management into a market and managing children for this world of automation where they were largely redundant and create impact markets in that, they needed to turn it into a standardized machine because it's going to be for global investment. It's not just any particular state or any particular country. This is running at the UN Sustainable Development Goal level, which education is for. So they needed everything standardized and that was Common Core and that was the standardized testing and that was online education and competency-based badges and, and all of that. So that was the education space. But now in the healthcare space, I'm finding that similar things were happening at the same time. So they were standardizing healthcare codes, treatment codes. Um, they were creating standards for wearable technology apps so that the, the, the same data standards could be used across multiple apps. They were linking it to electronic health records. And then when you think back to much of this is coming out of Penn and Wharton because Judith Rodin, who was the former Penn president, went on to the Rockefeller Foundation and they led the uh, charge for the creation of global impact investing. She, she led the creation of the global impact investing network and IRIS, which are the metrics for the, the game that these hedge funds are going to play. Um, you know, a lot of it was coming, was coming out of Wharton, was coming out of Penn Health. And then one of the, the key people who's connected to Penn is also Zeke Emanuel. So Zeke Emanuel was the um, architect of the Affordable Care Act. And he was a major advocate for uh, value-based payments, which is kind of like an outcomes-based model, and also for electronic health records and this data interoperability. So these things have been coming for a long time and they're fully bipartisan. I mean, in fact, in, right. in many respects, I think they're, they're largely, they're more, um, everybody's got their role to play. So I think the Democrats, because it's a weaponized social safety net, the Democrats are there to push the, the, the systems out into the open. And then, you know, the Republicans and the, the extremity of Trump was meant to further fragment everybody. So everybody was angry and discombobulated and pointing fingers at right. one another as opposed to Davos. So everybody kind of had their role to play, but now it's rolled back to the Democrats with Biden and blockchain healthcare is a major focus. They were a pioneer in Delaware hmm. and Delaware was a pioneer in benefit corporations that are going to be advancing this. So, you know, this idea of wearable technology, the internet of bodies, gambling on people's health outcomes, especially around our cost offsets to this. So the, the health outcome cost, cost offsets would be things like asthma, uh, diabetes, heart disease. And so, you know, it kind of goes back to the, the, the larger conversation around like germ theory and terrain theory mm. is that, you know, in Philadelphia, we, we live in a pretty toxic environment. Like I yes. work in an area that is like beset by environmental racism and mm. refineries and terrible air quality. Yes. And they would put all of those low-income people in that community, um, you know, on a brainwave headband and tell them to do yoga and tell them to walk and, and drop their weight or whatever, but they would still not give them a proper grocery store or clean the air. Right. It's like a story as old as time, really just not fixing the societal issues that cause these problems and rather just creating markets to, to benefit. Yeah, to, to gain finance, right? off of those. So 
I mean, and, and as I said before, earlier in our conversation, this is a long process. We've been coming up against, you know, we had a conversation together at a get together about cybernetics yeah. and, mm -hmm. and Norbert Wiener. Mm -hmm. um, let's, let's really quickly, cause you had a lot of really cool information. You know, I, I had just come across Norbert Wiener because my friend, you know, collects and sells books and we had come across one of his books. And I was like, what is this? So I, <laughs> I, you know, I've been kind of, well, I, I think we are facing, you know, a cybernetic system, the ultimate man versus nature kind of situation. So who is Norbert Wiener and what is cybernetics? Briefly, if you can. <laughs> yeah, well, <laughs> so cybernetic, I mean, it's sort of this fusion of man and machine, like a, a man machine, like individuals and social systems. And um, I came across Norbert Wiener, actually, there's a book that I would recommend. It's called Surveillance Valley. And it's by Yasha Levine. And so like a lot of people I know popularly read um, like surveillance capitalism, but again, Shoshana Zuboff is coming out of Harvard Business School. Her frame is that the internet got broken and we need to fix it, we need to redeem it. And Yasha Levine, his lens is specifically, it's a military history of the internet, understanding the, the internet mm -hmm. as a military construct and documenting that in, in quite some detail, especially the early chapters are really fascinating. And so in that respect, he's like, no, it's not broken. It's actually running as it was designed to run. I agree, yeah. And so if you, if you imagine that what we are experiencing is there's sort of continuation of um, empire, you know, that we are living in the belly of the beast of empire. And now, um, you know, I read another really good book that influenced me a lot, Manu Karuka's book, Empire's Tracks. And it was a history of, sort of the West Railroad, uh, which, you know, it's interesting, the Golden Spike was driven in by uh, Leland Stanford of Stanford University. So there, there's like this connection there of the corporate state and the military, like the, the corporations advancing this military infrastructure across the country to open up markets um, on behalf of the government and defended by the military, but it was a fundamentally a corporate enterprise. Um, working with the government. So it was sort of, you know, this public-private partnership that we're going to be seeing coming in with impact investing. And then the impact that that had both on the indigenous people who were pushed off of the land and that, and you know, the, the death of the buffalo and their food sources, and then also the Chinese railroad workers. So it was sort of a, an, an economic understanding of that. So like, but a big piece of that was looking at inland empire, you know, and, and now, if you imagine Inland Empire is not simply the closure of Manifest Destiny as, you know, coast to coast, but it's actually now the Manifest Destiny is the government, the corporate government control over our physical bodies down to ourselves, you know, like yeah. down to the, the imposition of population level bioengineering to fulfill the, the demands of the life science markets. Um, you know, it's it's interesting to think about that as sort of like a, a corporate military construct, a colonial construct. And so for me, anyway, that's why Yasha Levine's book is that this military piece is really interesting, sort of the corporate military construct of the internet. And so in that, he has a whole chapter about Norbert Wiener, who was sort of a, a wunderkind. You know, he was a brilliant individual. He was kind of quirky. He was sort of, he acted almost as a human computer and he had sort of a fraught personal life, but he, he helped um, 
calculate the trajectories like in his brain for like missiles that were shot off of ships in World War II. And, and he was quite brilliant and he understood he was the, the father of sort of early stage artificial intelligence. And then late in his life, he came to understand the implications, like as so many of these scientists do, you know, after the fact, right. of what had been built, right? And he's like, you know, if we get to the point where robots, like robotic labor replaces human labor, like then we are competing with slave labor. And that we have, we're going to have to bear the consequences of creating a mass slave labor world. And, you know, he, he, he had a number of lectures, one of which I transcribed in my blog, I think it was in New York City to one of the academies about this, like really calling into question what had been done. And at the time then he was sort of painted as a communist or, you know, he was sort of thrown out of, of you know, the, the circles, the, the desirable circles, because he had, he had looked askance at this model, but he had really, you know, as someone who is a, a person of logic and mathematics, he's like, no, wait a minute, actually, if we create a cybernetic world where humans are no longer valued, um, you know, that's a huge problem. And so I haven't read a lot of his, his books, but, um, you know, to me, that's a really important understanding, because I feel like what we're in in this moment as we face like the potential life in a planetary computer is sort of a, a sacredness versus a profanity. And yeah, you talk about that a lot. The yeah, and this signals the intelligence. Like that was something that really hit me. Like it hit me really hard. Michael Bloomberg is a key figure in all of this. He doesn't get nearly as much attention as Gates, but um, you know, he's going to be the guy to run the e-government solutionism prison planet, you know, like with, with Microsoft. And um, but he was an electrical engineer. And, and then he leveraged his expertise in electrical, electrical engineering to data analytics for the financial markets and then leveraged that into running the largest, you know, most powerful city in the world. And then used his position there to implement these, um, like what will be quite the nanny state, the techno-fascist nanny state protocols tied to the United Nations Sustainable Development Goals and the World Health Organization. So there's this logical trajectory. And if you understand like our life essence, is both individually and collectively as exuding this energetic system, like in relation with the other beings on the planet, they're trying to capture all of that into their, um, to feed it into both a military intelligence standpoint and a financial market standpoint. So we've got to somehow like um, get beyond that, like get out of their construct because we're sort of like the, the free, lightning that they want to stick into like you right. know a wire in the wall mm -hmm. is sort of like the way I feel about it no I totally agree I think I guess humans are sort of the last frontier the last sort of energy source even though historically speaking I feel like you know this has always been a struggle right we have very powerful people in the world that want to enslave the other people to do whatever it is that they want you know so the concept of slavery is not a new one, obviously, and it's it, but it, this is sort of a digital version of it. And I think that's what people are kind of having problems with. They can't conceptualize it. What I think is a very interesting phrase that you use all the time is techno-logic. What does that mean? So, um, you know, I take a lot of inspiration. I'm really like... <laughs> I'm not ter terribly a novel thinker. I, I, 
I synthesize a lot of stuff and from amazing teachings. And so I think John Trudell, who was a leader in the American Indian movement was quite an influential um, person for me. I think especially like an amazing voice for this time. And he, he spoke of this predator energy um, and, and that, that, that there was a predator energy that would seek to mine the being part of human, that the, um, the human essence. And I found in sort of navigating this past year that has so fragmented people, um, which is exactly how those in power want it. They want us fighting one another is that, and we had talked about using language, the language you use matters because it's highly charged. And if you, if you wade in and start using the language that's already very highly charged, it's, it, it becomes difficult to create unity. And to me, I feel like stepping outside some of the, the, the game that they would like us to play, the phraseology, the constructs they want us to operate in. And, you know, I don't, you don't have to say, okay, this is stakeholder capitalism. This is socialism, communism, fascism. Like as soon as you pick an ism, then all the people who have the other ism on the side of the other ism, they're going to disagree with you, right? <laughs> but if you can frame this as a spiritual engagement of the whole world, because that is what we're in right now, because of the, 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 this health, you know, scenario construct. If you, if you understand this as a, a moment of global solidarity, just not of the humans, but like we actually stand we did like for all of natural life, if you frame it as a predator energy in which anyone who is coming at things from like a, a sacred place, you know, a faith practice, um, that to push against this predator energy, this technologic, this machine, um, to me, it, it, it's, it, it's sort of a shortcut around the identity politics, the partisan nature, um, the fragmentation across political parties, religious groups, like this is all hands on deck moment, right? You know, I don't think any of us, you know, there are very few people out there who would prefer to live as a cyborg or an avatar in a, in a cartoon, you know? And if we understand the stakes at hand, then I think that, that that's an opportunity to bring people together. And that's why I, I use that. And I try to be very clear that, you know, unlike Shoshana Zuboff, like I don't think that it just got broken. I think that this is the logical extension of a system that has been broken for centuries, at least back to the doctrine of discovery, if not earlier, that there's right. a continuation. And so we have to work to rebalance the system and make it right with a full awareness of the past harm. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, we cannot be so steeped in the past harm that we become paralyzed and we don't move and do the work. I think part of it, uh, part of the harm that they do, which I'm sure, sort of at this point calling a, a shock collar society, is to give us whiplash and distract us and politically you know, um, paralyze us. So I think that's good to try to step out of these paradigms that we've all been shoved into. Um, and actually what I found something very interesting, what you were talking about was uh, Solutions Journalism Network and how, you know, we talk about, you know, how people have political beliefs and things like this. And I think people do have authentic rage, you know, this is not to discount anyone's rage or anything, anyone's political stance that they have um but i think what they've done is they've engineered the youth to cheer this on you've said this and part of that is through propaganda and so what is what is the solutions journalism network <laughs> what are their solutions and um 
and you said something very interesting. They're trying to change um, the legal system through media. I, I know that's a yeah. lot, but maybe. It's a lot. <laughs> no, it's <laughs> funny because like, I, you know, I think, you know, I feel like I'm a conduit for both experiences and shared knowledge, right? So I've been put in places to see things that I feel like I need to tell, share out, okay? And so I've been, one of the places that I would, experiences that I had was a number of years ago, I was organizing locally with um, Sherry Honkala, who is an amazing uh, longtime housing rights activist with the, the Kensington Welfare Rights League and the Poor People's Economic Human Rights Campaign. And she um, had gotten an invitation to attend an event at Temple University. And it was in conjunction with, um, I think, the Temple School of Communications, the Annenberg School at Penn, and the School of Communi Medium Communications at Rutgers. And it was the nonprofit. It was all of the nonprofit media sector of the greater Philadelphia area. And you know, for, for people who aren't aware, you know, most of the papers have you know succumbed. Um, the Inquirer, which is you know our daily paper of record, is now housed within the Philadelphia Foundation. So it is technically a nonprofit, even though it's the, the major paper. Um, so it's subject to these impact investment philanthropy programs. And they gathered all of the um, you know journalism. In, in, you know, entities into this hall at Temple University for everything from like an Afrofuturist podcast to, you know, the, the, you know, you know, every paper, you know, from the biggest, smallest paper to the, you know, the school paper, the, the Latino paper, you know, Aldea, the Tribune, they, they, they got them all in the room. And then they wanted to sort of, you know, it wasn't even very fancy. I was like, we kind of got like old donuts and coffee, you know, box coffee. And, you know, we were supposed to get on, get with the program and the program of solutions journalism, which people can look it up. It was actually birthed out of the op-ed page of the, the New York Times, um, uh, you know, so the paper of record and their funders are all the largest uh, philanthropic, you know, entities in the country. And they were set up to essentially restructure journalism at all levels to advance this social impact agenda. And so they talk about solutions, but the solutions are the ones that I'm saying they're data-driven and evidence-based and meant to justify ongoing surveillance of oppressed people um, under the guise of, you know, I call it sort of like faux progressive gaslighting. They're not in these, these solutions that will be offered by the impact investors will not solve the problems. And, and beyond that, even what's as terrible as being the individuals who are being managed within a broken system and put into this game and watched is that then there's this whole other class who are people who are slightly better off who are running the machine, maybe not at the top tier, not the managerial mm -hmm. class, but the educators, the social workers, um, the healthcare providers who hate what their job is turned into because it's incredibly dehumanizing. They're asked to do something that actively hurts people and that is terrible and unpleasant but then they're tied into the system as well. So on these many levels, but the solutions journalism is meant to advance the, the severity of the problems, which are real. You know, I, I acknowledge the, re, the reality of the, the, the problems of mass poverty and, you know, violence and issues of race and class, mm -hmm. but then to pivot and push up, push forward the interests of the impact investor class. And, you know, when we were in this room, when they were getting us all to, you know, share our stories and, you know, do our storyboards. And then we had these breakout groups 
and you know there was a gentleman there you know it's a young guy you know he can't help it because he's just like in his early 20s but he works for Acevea and Acevea is um, a GIS company that's in in the city of Philadelphia that the founder of whom pushed our city to do open data government and then used our open data to create pr predictive policing software um, which is called Hunch Lab to then sell back to the city, not just our city, but like East St. Louis and Chicago, right? So our, 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 you know, commons, our collective commons of data was unlocked so that a company could use it to develop software to police us. And then a representative of that company was in the space in, you know, the solutions journalism, like coffee and donuts meetup for the nonprofit media um, to say, we'd like to map your network. And then that's a huge problem. I'm saying, I said, if there was, you know, COINTELPRO, like that's exactly what is going on here. And I, you know, I got up at that point and I walked out. Um, so then the, the Annenberg School of Communications, which is at Penn, they were also advertising at the same time the next month that they were going to be having a separate gathering for corporate um, media, which was like a $3,000 a person, I think it was only not even a full day event that would then give them access to sort of exclusive membership perks of being the insiders club about the next phase of media, which included um, blockchain payments. And, you know, we've seen that this was several years ago. So now we've, you know, we've seen the emergence of Rockfin, we've seen the emergence of these other like cryptocurrency based alt media spaces, right? But they were anticipating all of that. They were anticipating the attention economy, the token economy. And um, so, so, so the solutions journalism is meant to both train people to have this certain lens they use looking at social problems. And then it's not simply, uh, you know, podcasts and print or, you know, whatever print passes for these days, you know, like it's not actual print, digital print um, media, but also the documentary film, documentary film yes. and immersive media, including VR and gaming. Um, so there was a, and, you know, I wish I had her name at my fingertips, but she, she's a prof former professor at Harvard Business School, and she'd become a film producer in New York. Mm -hmm. And so they would talk about, like, her production company would identify films that were speaking to issues that from a social impact investor space, they wanted addressed. And they wanted this measurable behavior change that we're talking about, that is the impact market, the measurable behavior, whether you're measuring that in signatures on petitions or clicks. And then she had even said, and this is in a, a panel at Columbia Business School, she's like, we, we look at it as tranches of investment. And we, you know, we, we are really very, very selective about the films we pick. And the ones that we pick are the ones, including ones that we think can move legislation. And she said, we're not actually supposed to say that because that's counter to the IRS like we're not supposed to do that, but we do. And, you know, so when we see these films that are about, um, one of them is called, um, oh gosh. Oh, I can't remember the name of the film. It was about early childhood investing. And this is what's coming with this Heckman equation. It was to advance universal pre-K investment markets um, because that's the market they wanted to shape, right? And so they, they, it's called No Small Matter. That's it, No Small Matter. And so they, just carefully craft these films to like pull your heartstrings, present a certain framing right. of the issue so that you are like, yes, this is the issue we care about. Like whether, you know, is it, is it, is it refugees? Is it substance, you know, issues? Is it issues around early childhood? And they pull your heartstrings and then they set up these markets for it. And, you know, it's not just that, but actually 
beyond the, um, the film industry. So now we have immersive gaming and VR headsets. And so the United Nations is very deeply into this and actually the Entertainment uh, Software Association. And they, they talk about games for change and using um, immersive gaming to change people's behaviors. So they're doing things like put on a headset and imagine you're in a refugee camp. And then and you were supposed to have some measurable change in your empathy level. Um, put on this headset and imagine that if you're white, that you're someone who's black, right? Or imagine that you're being bullied for some other issue. And so they're actually using these technologies which do can be used to actually digitally engineer people's neurological processes. Like they can actually re-engineer your neural circuits in how you experience these media right. over time. That's part of these new digital therapeutics. They're even talking digital vaccines. Now for chronic illness, they're gonna give you a digital vaccine that will change how your brain interfaces and that you know will change your health, health behaviors to change your um, health outcomes through the, the gaming environment. But um, I guess you know, it's, it wasn't it's enough. Oh, go ahead. Yeah. No, I, I mean, guess, that's, I mean, that's mostly it. I don't yeah, know. Yeah, I mean, I guess it just wasn't enough for them to be able to do that through regular media and through, you know, they've had the knowledge on how to psychologically manipulate people for many years now. Um, going and now back, it's an impact market. Yeah. So just to make money off of people's suffering. Perfect. Um, and control them and surveil them at the same right. time. Yes. Thank you for. Because if you're going to turn the world over to the robots, you know, you have to yeah. make sure people don't have some kind of, you know, bad reaction to that. You've got right. to yeah, they're on. trying to find the like, what is it, how people, I guess this is a DARPA project, but they're trying to find out uh, sort of this dissident gene or what makes people religious too. Uh, that's, you know, but this all comes from, I think, a lens of cybernetics where you, you see man as nothing more than a machine to be tweaked and um, used to whatever ends you want. So I, I, I think being students of, let's just say post-war history, like post-World War II is, I mean, a little bit before that, but maybe turn of the century, maybe start there and you'll see all of these plans and they're finally, I think my theory is basically the technology is finally caught up to their plans. And so they can implement. Yes. And I think that's the blockchain identity and the spatial web. It's those two things. Yeah. So, can I say something about the spatial web? I'd love for you to say whatever you'd like. Yeah. It's hard for people to imagine what that would look like, like what digital slavery looks like. And that is somewhat of my frustration with, um, you know, I wish there were more people talking about what it actually would look like because they do have pilot programs in place already. And so if you imagine, you know, a, a world, the physical world outside, like even in your house, right? So not even outside your house, inside your house, you're become smart, right? Your smart refrigerator, your smart toilet, your smart um, alarm clock, you know, all of the, these things that are monitoring you um, including your front door, including then outside of your house, um, the transportation access that you have, especially if towards Agenda 21, it's all, you don't have private mobility options. It's all shared mobility options. Your connection to be able to access physical spaces, whether they be work, school, stores, events, 
that there is a physical component, like a door. At some point you have to go in a door. And so everything will increasingly be locked down. And that if you do not have a token in your wallet, and this is sort of the spatial web, if you do not have um, clearance to unlock your right to participate in society in that way, um, you know, you will be shut out. And so that is, it's this connection of this augmented reality layer on the world. And that, that came through, you know, things that we think are really cool. Google Maps, you know, came out of Keyhole. And, you know, the, the satellites that are all going up to map us in real time and this, the, the 5G and the 6G, uh, you know, infrastructure, the telecom infrastructure is all tracking us and, and making the world smart. But the world being smart doesn't necessarily make it nicer for us. It actually makes us more controlled. And so when Pokemon Go rolled out, I was already somewhat aware of, of these tendencies and I was looking into um, Niantic, right? And so Niantic was the, the partner that was scaling Pokemon Go and Gilman Louie, um, you know, he was the head of InQtel. They were funding um, Niantic to create this. And so I'm like, InQtel is the, the venture capital arm of the CIA. And so I actually had a conversation or a question with a group before um, that was doing some community development work. And it all sounded great, you know, on the surface, it all sounded great. And it was backed by the Knight Foundation, which is advancing internet of things technology and the civic commons, the, 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 that's the thing they talk about, the civic commons, but also the internet of things and augmented reality. And so my question was for this, this community organizing group that was working in spaces with connecting parks and, and things that sound great, right? Like bikeways, like I love to bike. Like I'm not against many elements that, of things that are embedded into agenda. To, like I like having organic food and biking and having walkable communities. Yeah, I like the high bikes. speed like, trains, you know? But I, I said, so are you looking at these parks and how, um, data aggregation will tie into wellness behaviors because I know that again sustainable development goal three is part of this wellness program and is an impact market right you know and I had done a blog post I have a friend who lives outside of Seattle and she shared with me that a number of years ago maybe three or four years ago that Google was um, remaking their park so it was one of these public-private partnerships with all sorts of sensors and it was set up so that the kids could learn in the park through a smart device. Um, but part of the, the narrative around kids, it was maybe a summer learning opportunity, right? Like STEM, of course, it's always STEM learning. And you could go in the park with a, a tablet or a phone and you could learn things and earn points and badges that you could then use to support your school. But part of it was that the, the devices had a health tracker app, right? And so if you reimagine that your parks are run by Google for health management purposes, um, with QR codes and sensors, that's a very different thing, you know, and, and they were not aware that the augmented reality was coming out of the CIA. I think if people understood that the spatial web was a structure of the intelligence community, um, working in partnership with um, both human capital finance and military simulation technology systems because much of the the gaming environments are coming out of military r d people would look at it differently it might not seem so fun you know they might like look at those black mirror episodes and realize like oh yeah that's actually the plan yeah and we're not so far off that plan at this point yeah um it's actually kind of fascinating to me the kind of what i guess is like a collective amnesia because 
I feel like we've known where the internet came from. You know, we know this all comes from military and industrial spending and research and development. So at some point, some part of me, excuse me, is surprised that people forget that. Well, it's kind of this enrapture, you know, we, you've mm -hmm. gotten, it's like a spell cast. Right. And yeah, um, I, I've been trying to avoid the esoteric lately, but it's uh, an ongoing struggle. <laughs> so <laughs> it really well, I mean, is. You can call it military, you know, like right. brainwashing too. Like, but there is, there's yes. something about the language, the immersive media. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I, I recommend people look up uh, James Giordano. He's a professor of bioethics. I, it seems to be the bioethics people are always the most sketchy ones at, at Georgetown. Right. What, what is ethics? Like, it's right. like they know about ethics so they can talk about ethics, but they don't have any. That's, well, that's, that's well kind he's of... often talking about the mind is the next battle space. The yes. mind is the next battle space and dual use technology. And so many oh. of these technologies are advanced um, putting forth you know, we need brain engineering to address Alzheimer's or people with paralysis or people with mental illness. Mm -hmm. And then they develop these systems that were like, oh, wow, you know what? Now we can mind control anybody at will and they won't even know it. <laughs> yeah, they've been trying to do it for a while. Uh, the MK program was about that. So, I mean, and yeah. then you get, you get called a conspiracy theorist and that's always fun because that was also an invention of the intelligence community, that phrase. So, well, I mean, they're talking about like, I mean, another thing he speaks about is DNA based biowarfare. Yeah, I and wanted to like, ask you yeah. what a DNA, I'm sorry, what is a DNA nudge band? Because we're oh, talking yeah. about those. Okay. Yeah, well, part <laughs> of you know, controlling people, again, you know, at the basic level, controlling people's food access is, you know, one of the primary tools of compliance, right? If you can, if you can starve people out, that's a tremendous power. And so in this future, if you remove people's ability to have an independent economic system and you make them reliant on the state and then you tie their food assistance to blockchain and program it, right, so they can only use their assistance to buy certain things, which has always been in place, but right. now it's even more granular, right? You can have programmable money and much yeah, it's a bit more difficult to just go to like the bodega and be like, all right, I'm going to cash these food stamps out. It no, yeah, like none of that, because you, you got to track the impact, and so they, um, I believe it was, oh gosh, Imperial College London, so that the same one that the early report came out that had the crazy numbers that justified all of the lockdowns, you know, that right. were wrong. Mr. But Ferguson's he, um, this was the R&D, like all of these university systems have these giant sidebar research mm -hmm. and development dual use programs. And so they had developed something called a DNA nudge band where they're pitching. And again, a lot of this, I think, is pseudo total pseudoscience, right? I mean, this is if you look back to the teens and 20s and eugenics and the pseudoscience, like this is just this bioinformatics stuff. A lot of it, they don't know. I really don't think they know. Really ongoing it's yeah it's about. like an ongoing uh <laughs> fantasy narrative where they're right just, they're, they're just slow. imagining themselves that they have but they're like okay we can engineer you like we can engineer not only your gene expression but also we're going to map your whole microbiome because you know gut health and brain health are connected which is a thing that heckman is looking at but like now maybe we're, we're going to control through your food access, your gene expression, your microbiomes, we're going to give you nutraceuticals, like we're going to use nanotechnology, we're going to like engineer you. And my right. question is, is, like, in this world of eugenics, 
you know, in the, in the, the era of the Holocaust, like there was a certain ideal of a human that the Nazis right. advanced. The a strong entity. Yeah. Like this was the imagination of like, if you were going to engineer humanity, it was mm -hmm. towards this end. Yeah. But then what is eugenics for a post-human world? Like what kind of, and if they were going to do engineering, they don't actually like people. No. Like they don't want strong people. They, they want weak, impressionable, <laughs> chronically ill people, right? Like that's the genetic engineering that they want. They're, they're going to engineer people into obsolescence if we allow that to happen. So this DNA nudge band, if you imagine, um, it is developed uh, that you, they would determine your food. You would scan the food that you purchase and it would tell you, you know, or you would only be able to purchase food that was aligned with your, I guess your, you know, bioinformatic right, status. Right, like maybe. a sort of like biosensors. A giant bio nanny state situation, just like totally, on totally. steroids. <laughs> and then, and then, I mean, I've had people who don't get it, and they're like, "But I wouldn't do that." Or some stupid person wants to do that. Well, then they should do that. I'm like, "No, they're not going to want to do it. They're going to need it because they need food stamps." Right. They're going to like they're in not a position be, like, where they need to. Yeah. But so many people don't get that, and they, I, you know, I keep getting pushback. Not pushback, but people are like, "Why do you always talk about the poor, Allison?" I'm like, "Because they know because the you stuff. You have to. You like, have they to. They know how this works. Like, if, yes." They are the closest people to understand how to navigate a shitty system. <laughs> like they get it. So like I'm talking about that because not just to be, you know, get points, but that's the system. Like we have to understand how people have been managed for a really long time. And now this is the next iteration. Yeah. And, and I think so when you have to care because we're all going to be them. Yeah. When you think about humanity and you think about what the, I don't like even calling them elites. I think that's the wrong word because it makes me feel like they have some sort of credence, you know, but when you think of all of these things and how they impact people, you have to, I believe you have to think about the poor first because what these systems do is hurt them the most, you know, just for a very easy example, you know, I believe Philadelphia was one of the only cities to like go against the cashless thing, right? Yeah. Um, because go yeah. agree with me. We didn't always <laughs> agree on everything, but that was a really good one. Yeah, yeah. It like it directly impacts how like let's say I'm on the street and I have some cash and I see a person like fine, you know, I'd love to give them some change or whatever because part of me feels like I have this resource and they don't so why not share it if I can you know and that that's just a very simple way of looking at it you know one of the examples I think that's easiest for people to get like if we move into these systems there's going to be a lot of people left behind and no one wants to acknowledge that I feel but I think, well, I think that's the universal basic income lie that people are right. like falling into on the progressive side is they yes. imagine that it's just going to be no strings attached. And I'm like, no, I can pretty much tell you there's going to be strings. It's going to be programmable money. And in Australia, they've already piloted putting their disability on blockchain and programming it. So they might lead you with there's no strings attached, but who's going to live on a thousand dollars a month? You can't live on that. Here. But then, and, and then you have to like factor in what would this do to inflation? You know what I'm saying? Like it devalues any of the currency that currently exists because it's just printing money out of nowhere. There's right. no, no back. Well, I mean, the, the idea is I think that you will be an investable commodity for mm -hmm. the people like Peter Thiel. 
great. And, you know, and that's part of what I, I sort of bump up against sometimes with the libertarian crowd, because mm. I think many people like feel that, you know, I want local control. I want, you know, big government out of my hair. Like, I don't want to be part of the globalists. Like, just leave us alone and we'll have our small town and our own schools and our own small businesses and we'll do our own thing. And I'm like, the thing that has been set up globally is for the big L libertarians, like the Peter Thiel libertarians, the ones who have all the money and are going to invest in you as a behavior commodity. And, and that's, you know, that's the game. Like, if we don't actually understand the game that we're in we're not going to be well positioned to combat it you know to come up with with a a proper way of engaging and you know i truly believe that given the the scope of what we're up against that that this is that this is a a, a spiritual this is a an engagement beyond the material realm yeah you know and I i'm agree. not saying this like i think it's based like in faith in energy and other things. And so that's why I feel like if you are not right um, with your relationship to hum other human beings, if you are not right in your relationship to the environment, we're not gonna be able to break through into that energetic system that we need to get where we need to go in, in the face of what's happening. Like if, if we're hedging and we're still being kind of jerky, selfish people, or we're like, there's like a sense of we have to own our shit. And yeah, then I was talking to somebody about this and we agree where you're first, you're going to have to do a lot of really hard self work, right? You're going to have to look at yourself, who you are, all of your flaws, everything like that, and kind of come to terms with it. And then only then once I believe this anyway, only when you can have compassion for yourself and all of the horrible things that you can be, then you can have compassion for others. It's sort of like, if you don't love yourself, you can't love anyone else kind of thing. So yeah. um, I think that's where we're at. I think we're, we are, because this is a material, they want to frame it. I mean, yes. I think that part of the woke stuff is like you, you can do something that's on the surface seems like it's the right thing, mm -hmm. but it's like the shortcut. It's sort of like you checked the box, but you didn't necessarily, you know, like you didn't absorb it. It's yeah, yeah it's, it's not like you're integrated. Doing it because into other it. people expect you to do it, not because it's mm -hmm. like it's coming to you from necessarily from an authentic, like yes. a very deep place. Yeah, I think that's part of what my focus on like identity politics and sort of this inauthentic self that they push on people. So you mentioned in your talks a couple of things. Uh, from MIT, which I always find fascinating what they're up to. What is mm -hmm. MIT's, and I think you called it an ocean protocol, but it's not about the ocean. Maybe I yeah, misheard actually, you. I might have misspoken. So there's two oh. things. One is ocean protocol. M the MIT one is Enigma. The Enigma. Oh, yeah. Enigma. Yeah. So I have, what is MIT's Enigma protocol? And then I guess maybe it's not MIT then for the other one. Yeah, so th so there's two. So first I'll say, so the, the blockchain identity system, now this company has kind of gone underground, but I'm sure that the people haven't really gone away. They've just moved on to other things. And I, I found them actually in the, you want a rollicking um, you know, video, there's a four hour video with New America Think Tank and the World Bank on blockchain. It was a couple years ago, it was a four hour video. And like buried in the middle of it is Sean Conway with IXO Foundation. And that's out of Switzerland because all of this stuff, again, Switzerland is, you know, um, 
banking, the UN, CERN, blockchain valley, you know, all of this stuff. Developed this app for pre-K identity um, in, in Cape Town. And then they also had developed a test case to manage uh, people in the global south that they would not be allowed to use firewood to cook or heat their homes, that they needed to use cook stoves that were provided. But the cook stoves for the impact markets had to have the internet of thing enabled. So you would know exactly when it was turned on and when it was turned off so everybody could get the proper credit for the impact, right? And so for them, like it didn't really matter if it was a toddler on a surveillance play table or on an attendance app or an internet of things cook stove. It was just something you kind of monitored for data, right? And so these, these impact tokens were part of that. And then the ocean protocol was also connected to IXO foundation. And what was happening would be all of the impact data the data analytics that were coming off of the Internet of Things sensor collections would go into this back end that would actually feed the creation of artificial intelligence. So if you can imagine scaling the impact market where all of this, the people and the physical environment that you're interacting with in the spatial web is then feeding back into strengthening the machine learning to tr trigger the singularity. Right. That's exactly kind of what they're doing. They're not only like mining us in the moment, but they're building like the eventual end of normal life on Earth. And they always have to start in uh, impoverished communities, right? Yeah, I mean, but it's so it, a lot of it is refugee populations. It's the global south. But then like Michael Bloomberg and Robert Woods Johnson Foundation did a pilot in Austin with people, unhoused people in Austin. Mm. So... You know, that's, it's, it's so now the things that we have done away are coming back and onto, you know, domestic populations. Um, right. So that's the ocean protocol. So Enigma protocol is an outgrowth of MIT um, because MIT actually really incubated the cryptocurrency space, the digital business model, the digital currency program came out of MIT. So like Harvard does a lot of the policy work and like the business structure work. And then MIT does a lot of the tech some business out of Sloan, but a lot of, you know, the, the tech infrastructure, they kind of work hand in hand, that Boston military venture capital, you know, biotech complex, you know, Boston is just a pit. Like I didn't realize, ever fully realize how bad it <laughs> really was. Maybe not as bad as San Francisco, it's pretty bad. Yeah, um, we, I mean, and then Philadelphia is sort of the, the med, the med sector, I think, the medical. Yeah. Well, the know? crazy thing is I have this like deep memory of fighting um, the end of years, uh, high school high stakes testing called the Keystone exams. And we were in city hall for some sort of like legal proceeding. And I ran into Daryl Clark, the council president, and I was telling him what a problem these Keystone exams were and how unfair they were. And he looked at me and he's like, no, no, we need these exams. Like, we need the kids achieving. We are an eds and meds economy. We're an eds and meds economy. And I was like, okay. And so like for several years, I was thinking like he meant, oh, we're gonna train people to work in education and medicine. But now, in retrospect, as I understand the biocapitalist model, this impact investing model is actually, we're redundant. We're here to be processed by eds and meds. We're here to be processed on an educational pathway. We're here to be processed on a chronic illness, wellness management, right. ongoing transhumanist bioinjection, biosensor pathway. Like, we're not, there's not going to be many people doing the eds and meds we're being the process. It's, it's like the post-post-Fordism where we're on the assembly line. We're the car. 
like we're the, the humanity is the vehicle and then the robots and the nonprofits and the, um, you know, bio injections or, you know, whatever these solutions are for us are the things on the side that are managing our process needs. So, right. So really quickly, Boston and MIT's, what was it? Oh, so the Enigma protocol. Yes, that one. So this is the piece that I think people are not getting because they, they sell blockchain identity as privacy. It's wonderful. You can be your yeah. own brand. You can unlock your data whenever you want, only the data you want and all this, that, and the other. But what they're not saying is that MIT has created something called Enigma protocol that allows them to query on encrypted data. Mm -hmm. So that may not mean that they know exactly what you did, like you personally, but that they would for these impact markets then be able to like query on there would probably be a, a you know a label in your record that said you had received certain interventions mm -hmm. and that the cohorts whether that's like a third grade class getting a reading intervention or a group of returning citizens getting a housing intervention or you know a group of women who were in the court system for child protective services had like everyone is will be tagged and then tracked for if you later become incarcerated, you know, medicated, da, 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 da. Like they can, they can keep an eye on the cohorts through the encrypted data. So maybe not you individually, but these larger groups. So that will allow the digital identity to run these impact markets through this internet of bodies that's coming. And so that means if we agree to being a digital brand, to being a digital identity, one, we have to acknowledge that it's going to be enabling these impact markets. And then two, we have to realize that essentially we become data capital. Like that is mm -hmm. truly our destiny. If we agree to live in the spatial web as a digital citizen, as an e-citizen, then our life becomes simply acting out data analytics. You know, it's gross. Yeah, it's very, very much anti-human. Um, and I, I mean, I think yeah. we're still like five or 10 years out from this all yes. happening. Yeah. But like it's clearly locking in. And once they get people on blockchain, I don't know how you, especially if it becomes with biometric data capture that's tied to your blockchain identity or potentially biosensor technology that, that makes you, um, you know, resonate with this internet of bodies, then that is, that's really, I don't know how you go back. Mm. I mean, spiritually, I guess there's always like a potential redemption. Like we have to believe that there's always some kind of potential redemption, but it's scary. I really appreciate, you know, you taking the time to speak with me about all of this. I have like a million questions I could ask you, obviously. <laughs> what are some things people can do, first of all, to follow your work, and second of all, to sort of soothe themselves for this oncoming <laughs> onslaught of a technological fourth industrial revolution? Okay, so if you want to just follow up with my, I do have a blog. It's called Wrench in the Gears, Wrench like a tool, W-R-E-N-C-H. Um, and then I have a YouTube channel, which I don't know. I just had my first talk pulled down yesterday. So I don't know. I guess I need to like now back everything up. <laughs> what did you oh. talk about? I did, Well, it was with Jason um, uh, Leosadis and Sandy Adams in the UK. And I think they talked a little bit more about medical stuff than I usually do. So mm. something must have gotten flagged. But say la vie, right? Um, you know, we were all talking about like spiritual redemption and that clearly must be dangerous too. We can't have any of that. So, um, but if you look up my name, Allison McDowell, A-L-I-S-O-N-M-C-D-O-W-E-L-L -L -L on YouTube, I'm still there for the moment. And, um, and then, yeah, I've been like, I mean, everybody, 
you know, in addition to John Trudell, I really like the, the work of Robin Wall Kimmerer, who is a um, indigenous scientist biologist at the SUNY Forestry School. And, you know, she talks about, um, you know, she's kind of a wonderful, like maternal anti-capitalist indigenous woman. Like she just has this amazing, but she studies moss and, you know, thinking about like ceremony and connection to, to natural practices. And, you know, she talks about like, find your gifts and how to give them. Like, what, what are you good at and where are you? Because I think all of this can feel so overwhelming. And I think this past year has sort of shown that we feel a little bit disconnected from time. Like we've sort of fallen mm -hmm. out of time. Things are both really fast and really slow. Yeah. And so like, we have to like be conscious of not getting too panicked in the moment, right? Like we have to like own that. I don't think that it's supposed to end this way. And so we just like take a deep breath and figure out some things that you can do. And, you know, some people's gifts are working on, you know, reconnecting with old ways and, you know, mutualism and agorism or permaculture, or looking at cre creating independent social systems. And that's, that's great. I mean, I wouldn't do it on blockchain. That's my personal thing, but like some people are doing those things. Some people are pursuing legal strategies and things. And, you know, I have my questions about whether or not the court system was ever really set up for the people, but you know, some people are working in those areas. Um, mm -hmm. I'm working, like, part of what I do is just try to do some small things. Like, I can't build a town tomorrow. I can't leave my family and go build a town. But, like, I could have people for soup. Like, we have sort of monthly gatherings where people just come and have fellowship. And then the other thing I've been doing, and I've, I've been talking with someone about trying to create a way of, like, sharing this inter in an interactive format is, um, <clears throat> like, ceremonial like revocations of consent, because a lot of this is contracts. And, you know, I'm not deep into any of that sovereignty stuff so much, but I think like, even if they say that they have to have our permission, if we go around and find places, my background is cultural landscape. And we say, no, you don't actually have my permission to do that. And in a, in a, in a grounded and spiritual way. And then um, uh, doing that, you know, maybe with some ceremony or some documentation uh, to go along with it. And I've done that myself for a while around Philadelphia, around Penn, um, you know, I did a bunch of ones in Salt Lake City and like a transmutation. I have friends who are more into like energetic healing and this idea of like, how do you transmute? Because you can't take away um, like all of this for, but how do you try to rebalance, right? How do you try to rebalance? And so we're trying to think up of some sort of creative um, ceremonial practices, especially now that the weather is getting warmer, mm. that would both bring people together in a social way, maybe with... Um, uh, music or song or you know prayer or food and surface some of these things and sort of stand and witness and then and then pull our consent back in and then assert like try to manifest something that we want and right. to me even that idea of connecting with other people in yes. that way, in the way is very powerful. I agree I think that's you know one of the things that you know I feel like this was a, a one last gamble right to kind of put everything into place. And one of the things that really disturbed me at the beginning of this was everyone agreeing with the big government on how to live their social lives. And, and you know, sort of being like, okay. And, and also giving them, you know when you're sick. I'm sorry, excuse me. I really just think that if you are a responsible person, you stay home and that's, and, and we could talk about healthcare and how, Part of this problem is we have terrible health care in this country. You know, people don't feel like they can stay home, right? They don't, 
but then everyone was forced to. So I think it's very important for everyone to come together physically. I think the physical realm is where we're going to be strongest in this situation. That's just my feeling on it. So yeah, I got that in New York this weekend. It was so mm-hmm. amazing to just to be with people. You, right. you take for, I used to, I will never take that for granted no. again. And then I learned about hugging. Like they're like, Oh, you hug on the left because it's heart to heart. And I'm like, Oh, I never knew I was doing right. it wrong. You and know, you it's share the energy exchange. Yeah. Yeah. And people, I know it sounds kooky to a lot of people, but I, I think that's, you know, part of the problem where we've entered a total sort of, what you know, I guess positivism, right? Like science is everything and it solves all of our problems for us. And we've totally left behind spiritual sort of things that I believe are very important. So well, the crazy thing is, is I was looking at the Google community standards today because I was just curious after they pulled down my thing and it said that you are not allowed to like advocate for a spiritual or faith approach to being sick. That's wild. I know it's kind of interesting to see them writing that down. It, it's very interesting. <laughs> wow, that'll give me some food for thought after this conversation. So again, I really appreciate you uh, taking some time to speak with me. And uh, if you ever want to come back, you can. 